Hello, welcome back to the Medical Chalk Talks. I'll be your host, Evid Arias, and this is going to be episode number three, and I'll be talking about acute respiratory distress syndrome. And it'll be a very long episode in which I explain the diagnosis, the management, and certain different trials relating to the management and how they are now specific guidelines and really where the data came from. I'll try to make it very specific, um, so I won't go into any other details beyond just ARDS, but I'd also like to implement some information about COVID-19 and relating to ICU management when patients are intubated. So it'll be a long episode, but I hope you enjoy. I'll try to make it as simple as I can, uh, and then I'll go from simple to complex, and hopefully you're able to follow along. But to start, acute respiratory distress syndrome was a d- syndrome that was seen or a di- or a disease that was seen like back in the 1970s. And back then, we there was a really very high mortality rate for the, these patients. Uh, and it almost looked like patients were presenting with what pediatric patients would present with acute respiratory distress. Um, they would have bilateral pulmonary edema. And they wouldn't be able to survive that. So it wasn't until research was done, clinical trials were done, that we were able to figure out a specific management for these patients. And I'll present the data for you all today. But before I start, I want to define acute respiratory respiratory distress syndrome. Acute respiratory distress syndrome is essentially any... So there's kind of two five criteria that we look at. It's called the Berlin criteria. But before I start about how to diagnose it, I'd like to explain the pathophysiology so you could follow along. But acute respiratory distress syndrome is basically anything that... uh, Anything could cause the inflammation in the lungs. Any inflammatory state, for instance, any sepsis. It doesn't have to be long lung pathology. Um, patients with pancreatitis could even get acute respiratory distress syndrome, but really any overwhelming inflammation in the body, drowning, trauma, burns, anything you can think of that could cause inflammatory cytokine release could give you acute respiratory distress syndrome. And that's what we're seeing now with the COVID-19. We're seeing this progression of a cytokine storm initiated by these cytokines, macrophages, attacking the body and attacking specifically the lungs. Um, So that's really what the big issue is. And because of this inflammatory state, you're going to have alveoli. They're going to have significant inflammation causing them to become collapsed or you're going to have atelectasis. When you have a non-aerated lung alveoli, that's what atelectasis is. You're not able to provide ventilation for these patients. So the alveoli will collapse on its own. Um, and really, that's the biggest issue is that these patients without mechanical ventilation will not survive because they're not able to provide naturally any ventilation to themselves. So that's where mechanical ventilation comes in hand because mechanical ventilation essentially will be able to open up those airways, those lungs, um, and allow them to become aerated to prevent atelectasis or to at least minimize the atelectasis that is already going on. So that's why you need high PEEP because PEEP is essentially pressure that is going to allow the lung to open up. Um, It's positive expiratory pressure. Um, So you're you're providing 
pressure to open up the lungs. And why do you need tidal volume? Um, low tidal volume is able to help open up the airway just enough that you're preventing, um, you're opening up, helping basically essentially prevent them from collapsing on their own. But there has to be a balance between opening up the airway just enough and over distension. So they saw that if you give too much tidal volume, you could also cause something called volume trauma. Uh, or if you give too much PEEP, you could cause barrel trauma. So that's something that we're going to discuss um, collectively in terms of what trials we've seen. And you'll be able to have a better appreciation of the management because of that. But just keep that pathophysiology in mind that essentially what management is looking at is lung protective mechanisms through the vent that is going to help prevent one, prevent or minimize atelectasis. Number two, protect patients from having lung distension or volume trauma. Number three, help patients become receive enough ventilation, but also prevent them from having barometric trauma or barotrauma. So with that in mind, I'd like to discuss now the trials that really came into uh, into the what really implemented the guidelines that you see today. And the first one that I think most of you guys have heard, or at least are um, should be familiar about, is the RDS Net protocol. And the R R A R D S Net protocol was actually a protocol that was based on a trial in 2000 called the ARMA trial. And ARMA trial was actually a very big study. Um, it actually had to be stopped because it was helping patients um, survive longer. And it was a, a randomized controlled trial that recruited 861 patients with ARDS. And the, really the, the big question they wanted to answer was, does lung protective um, ventilation, meaning um, patients receiving low tidal volume 6 to 8, and, and high PEEP, um, is that more beneficial than traditional mechanical ventilation in which patients receive PEEPs of less than 12 with a plateau pressure of greater than 50, less than 50? So we'll describe every little definition I just said there, plateau pressure and everything. But basically what they were trying to answer is how do we protect these patients from dying uh, and when, which point would, and what, and what settings would mechanical ventilation be beneficial? So after they did the study, they actually saw that low, low tidal volume and high PEEP seemed like it was a method that worked better. But really what, it, what, it, what they initially, what they really found out was it was actually the plateau pressure that was causing, um, increased survival. The plateau pressure of less than 30, and the plateau pressure, like I said, is essentially the equivalency pressure when you when a patient has an inspiratory pause. So it's basically looking at lung compliance. Um, so plateau pressure is looking and seeing how complying is the lung um, in general, these are very simple terminologies. Um, there's obviously more physiologic processes going on, but if you think about it like that, you'll be able to understand the balanced state of the lung once you have inspiratory pressure, and that's something that you do in the vent. In the vent, you have to press inspiratory pause for about one and a half second, and then you'll get the uh, plateau pressure. 
but they saw that if patients had a greater than less than plateau pressure of less than 30, they had an increased survival. So the RDSNAP protocol is a protocolized method of being able to reach those plateau pressures. So there's high, there's high PEEP, low tidal volume. There's also low tidal volume, low PEEP, but high FI2. So there's different settings that you could look at. And in general, they saw that guidelines currently say that you could essentially be able to um, reach, have what we, what we say, you could have hypercapnia. Hypercapnia, as long as it's not less than 7.25, you could be you could allow patients to become hypercapnic, meaning they're gonna have a, they're gonna be acidotic. Um because if you because obviously if you look at uh to someone who's acidotic, how do you uh, how do you uh, make someone acidotic is you either you're gonna have to decrease the uh the rate, right? The respiratory rate, or you're gonna decrease the tidal volume. Respiratory rate and tidal volume are the ones that are gonna allow you to ventilate a patient, right? Um, so if you if someone's having low tidal volumes, they're not ventilating, so their CO two is gonna remain in their body, then that's gonna drive the pH down. So though ARDS patients in general, if you're using those vent settings, their CO two is gonna go up based on those vent settings that you're using because the tidal volume is gonna be low, so the CO two is gonna rise. So they're saying that's okay if they become acidotic. Uh, it's called permissive hypercapnia, as long as their pH is not below 7.25. And they also looked at driving pressures of 13 or 15 is an adequate number that they want to target. So driving pressure is another thing you need to look at. Is it's basically saying, is driving pressure is basically the difference between plateau pressure and PEEP. And is, is you could think of it as how much work is being required to open up the lung? That's a very simple terminology of saying it. Given a given a patient's compliance, how much pressure do I have to do I have to give to provide um, uh, ventilatory support? Because if if a patient has a very uh, very high plateau pressure, that's going to be a lung that's not very compliant, right? Because compliance is pressure over volume. And if you want a lung that's very compliant, sorry, volume over pressure. So if you want a, a lung that's very compliant, you would want, it's the inverse. You would want a plateau pressure that's low and that will give you an increased compliance. Uh, because compliance is basically saying how much volume can I fit um, on a balloon in comparison to the change in pressure that I'll get after that volume is um, given. So you want something that's compliant, meaning someone, a balloon that's very distensible. If I can give them a, a, a let's say, a 600 tidal volume, the pressure won't change as much. So that's that's why it's inverse of plateau pressure compliance. So they're saying uh, driving pressure, if a patient has a really good driving pressure, that means they would require less plateau um, pressures for a given vent ventilatory cycle uh, to open up their airway and everything. So I'm spending a lot of time with this physiology because once you understand that, everything else will really make sense. And, and really, it comes down to understanding the physiology of a patient. All these trials, all these numbers are not going to mean anything to you if you don't understand the physiology of what ARDS is. So I feel like now at this point, you have a good understanding of the ARMA trial and you understand that ARMA trial really changed everything. And after the ARMA trial came out in 2001, I believe, there was just a 
increased survival rate. So the, they actually had to stop the, the trial early because so many patients were surviving uh, in this randomized um, trial. So they did not want to, it was actually causing harm to those patients that were not um, getting lung protective ventilation. So then after that, new other questions came out is what, if, what about neuromuscular blockade? So then there was other studies like the accuracy trial. Um, and before I look at the, before we go on to these other trials, I think it'll be important now to talk about how to define ARDS. So ARDS, because the accuracy trial actually looked at specific parameters uh, for including patients uh, for those trials. So ARDS is um, obviously both the clinical um, diagnostic and also diagnostic presentation, right? Patients could come clinically, they look respiratory distress, but it could be from many causes. It could be from cardiogenic edema. It could be just from any other issues. But to truly define ARDS, we have to look at how to make those definitions. And it's based on a Berlin criteria. Um, and it was looking at different parameters um, that you need to look at. So in order for you to actually think that it's ARDS, patients have to be presenting with either um, an incident, any type of incident that happened about a week ago, or a new incident, um, or a worsening um, issue, known issue. So meaning if someone's coming in with a week ago, they were admitted, or a week ago they had pneumonia, uh, they were sick, um, and now you see a progression of that. Okay, that's that's within a week. But if nothing happened and it was in the last time he was hospitalized, it was the last time the person got sick was a month ago, that less likely it's ARDS. It has to be something else. It doesn't have to, but less likely that it's ARDS. The pretest probability is lower for ARDS. So that's one of them. Acute onset within one week, new or worsening um, um, ideology of something. Two is on the chest x-ray, patients have to have bilateral opacities. That's not defined by nodules, um, any type of, um, any really any other incidents beyond, non, it has to be non-cardiogenic edema is what you look at, what's, what we usually define it. Um, and it's not nodules or any metastasis that you can think of. And, and not, it's not explained by effusions, by low bar or lung collapse. Um, and then the other one would be the respiratory failure is not fully explained by cardiac failure or fluid overload. So it's a non-cardiogenic edema that the patients have. And then finally is looking at the FiO2. So what we call it is PaO2 FiO2 ratio. PF ratio is what we call it sometimes. And that's kind of a way of measuring the severity of a patient's respiratory distress. And essentially what we look at is we look at the ratio. We just like get the ABG, we get a PaO2, PaO2 from the ABG, and the FiO2 is basically how much oxygen you're giving it. So 40%, FiO2, 100%, all that. And you divide it and then you get a number. It's either it's in mercury. Um so if it's less than 300, right? So if it's between 200 and less than 300, that's mild. If it's um for instance, less than 200, uh, that's moderate. If it's less than 100, that's severe. So that's something uh, that we should consider, obviously. If it's between 100 and 200, that's moderate. If it's below 100, that's severe. And you need to meet those, those classifications. If a patient's greater than 300 
they don't not they're not in ARDS because obviously they're not having a respiratory. There are maybe they might be in respiratory distress, but not enough to meet those criteria. And then in terms of oxygenation, other criteria, you need to be able to have patients with needing mechanical some type of PEEP. So it has to be either PEEP uh, through mechanical um, ventilation that's greater than five, or a CPAP that's greater than five. Um, and that's, you know, so essentially looking at those five. So in review within one week onset or clinical onset or new or worsening respiratory distress, patients have to have meeting the PAF, PF or PAO2 or FIO2 ratio of less than 300. They have to have a PEEP of greater than five. They have to have chest x-rays that are bilateral opacities, not explained by effusions, low bar or lung collapse. And also finally, their respiratory failure is not explained by cardiogenic failure or cardiogenic edema. So that's, those are very important things to think about because you want to make sure that the that you're treating a patient adequately. So now with that being said, I'll try to speed up the rest of the, the data in terms of other trials. So then now that you know that information, it'll help us understand the next trials. So the next following trials that I'll like to explain was looking at neuromuscular blockade, uh, proning, ECMO. So now those are actually part of the guidelines now, but I want to make sure you understand where they came from. So the neuromuscular blockade came from a series of trials in 2006 and 2008. There are actually one trial called Accuracy. Accuracy's a trial. It was a multi-center double-blinded study, placebo-controlled, and it recruited 340 patients. Um, and they actually found to have a, severe, a reduction in 90-day mortality if patients versus in patients who received Nimbix, uh, cystotrochium, versus patients who did not. And they actually found there was a reduction in barrier trauma, pneumothorax, and days out of the ICU. And that was in 2008. And then a recent trial from the PEDAL network, which is ARDS uh, PEDAL network, called the Roche trial. It recruited uh, 1,006 patients in 2019. And they also wanted to just figure out, you know, is that accuracy really truly evidence for us to do neuromuscular blockade? And it was a really large study, multi-center trial, like I mentioned. And they found that in 90-day mortality, they recruited patients with early NIMBEX versus patients who did not receive neuromuscular blockade. And they found that there was no significant difference. And this Roche trial actually is not still, it's still not being considered in the guidelines yet. So the reason why we're saying that neuromuscular blockade should still be used is because we're still basing our guidelines off the accuracy trial, just because this Rose trial was just so new. Um, so based on that information, we're still doing neuromuscular blockade. And why do we use neuromuscular blockade? A lot of the times we're using neuromuscular blockade. The guidelines say that you should use neuromuscular blockade, like neuromuscular uh, blockade on patients who have uh, a PF ratio, PAF, PAO2, FIO2 ratio of less than 150. So essentially patients who are developing severe ARDS. Um, and why do you use it? You use it because you want to provide synchrony on the vent. Sometimes patients are over-breathing, there's breath stacking, and they're causing uh, an increased plateau pressure from that standpoint. So you want to make sure that um, you're synchronizing patients' ventilatory cycle with the vent. Um, and I won't go too much detail on that, but that's something that we, we typically do. In terms of the, the data for proning, uh, so proning was based on a pretty large well, normal study called the Proceva trial. And uh, Proceva trial looked at 466 patients in 2008 to 2011. And they wanted to ask, does proning help um, 
the primary out- outcome was all-cause mortality at 28 days. And they actually found that proning for greater than 16 hours daily for 28 days actually did um, decrease mortality for those patients. It was a randomized controlled trial. Um, so that's really the data that we're getting. Um, and then the, the other info that you want to learn about is ECMO. Uh, and ECMO is obviously getting a lot of uh, news now with patients getting ECMO and IRDS. But initially, we started with a trial in 2001-2006 called CSER trial, and it was a randomized controlled trial. It recruited 180 patients, and really the primary outcome was death at six months. And it did show that there was an increased survival for those patients using ECMO. And like I said, all the data that I'm presenting is literally the nuts and bolts. And there's a lot of uh, you know discussion even within their own uh, different societies, whether this data is there, you know, there's obviously different types of analysis you can do, but based on the overall statistical analysis that the authors use, there was an increased survival. And the other one that right now currently we're still, essentially there was some, um, initially the, this other trial that looked at ECMO called the OLEA in 2012, 2017, it recruited 249 patients. It was a randomized controlled trial. It was an international multi-center trial. And it was actually initially found that there was no significant difference, um, but there was uh, there was other uh, peer review author or ed- editors that looked at it, and they actually noticed that they did not use an intention to treat model, and and there was some patients who were excluded from the non ECMO control group, and they were they had an increased survival with ECMO, and they were not part of the analysis. Um, and so that's why there was no statistical difference. So they actually looked at if they were to use intention to treat model, there will there would be statistical difference in uh, patients in ECMO. So and they use VV ECMO, which is venous venous, and that's something that you use for patients with lung issues. You use VA ECMO for patients with um, cardiac issues like cardiogenic shock. But that's a different topic that I could do a podcast on. So while the LEO trial did not show statistical significance, decrease in mortality, the high rate of crossover from the control group makes it difficult to analyze conventionally. There was obviously a clear benefit seen in the most secondary outcomes, and there was a trend towards significance in the primary outcome as well. That was the analysis that I'm reading for the feedback that the trial got from some peer reviewers. So it led to some controversy, obviously, uh, and debate about the results of that trial. And, and then obviously to this time, I think currently they're still kind of talking about it. Uh, but, the significant, but given the significant period of time required to recruit sufficient participants, it is unlikely there will be a further randomized controlled trial on this topic. So overall, though, uh, the final conclusion was that the VV ECMO remains a reasonable option to utilize in severe ARDS patients, which have failed conventional mechanical ventilation. So when do you consider using VV ECMO? So based on the extracorporeal life support organization 2017 indications, you would want to consider, and these are actually guidelines that, that are implemented in ARDS patients, you want to start implementing um, VV ECMO in patients who have, um, based on kind of the, the study that I looked at, a PF ratio of less than 80, um, despite you know, failing other interventions like proning, um, neuromuscular blockade. So that's kind of like the last resort. Patients with what we call refractory hypoxemia. 
And you also want to consider in patients with significant respiratory acidosis despite high plateau pressures. Uh, so maybe a pH less than 7.25, even and you're not able to um, provide and reduce the high plateau pressure with uh, the lung protective ventilation. Um, so with that being said, that's a lot of info. Uh, something that I want to kind of also hammer with you is initially the first uh, thing that we want to do with patients presenting with shock or sepsis is to ensure adequate nutrition. Um, um, so that's something that there's actual diabetic uh, nutritional uh, re, um, guidelines saying that you want to ensure adequate nutrition for these patients. So within the first couple hours of them coming into the ICU, so the Aspen is an organization that looks at inter, uh, nutrition for just ICU patients. They recommended early internal nutrition within 24 to 36 hours. So meaning you place an NG tube, you you give them um, nutrition through that, not enteral, sorry, not parenteral nutrition, not through the veins, but through the enteral enteric system. And you do it within 24 to 36 hours of ICU uh, or within 12 hours of intubation. And they're recommending continuous feeds, not bolus. They're also recommending uh, low dose enteral nutrition initially, and then advancing to higher full doses within one week or so if the patient's tolerating. And you hold if patients have high pressures or multiple or rising lactate. So if the patients have really high pressure requirements or there are multiple pressures, you don't want to you want to hold enteral nutrition at that point. Uh, and then if they have a rising lactate, you want to hold it as well. So another thing that you want to think about is make sure, make sure you want if now that we're thinking knowing that patients with COVID do develop ARDS, maybe we would want to not bolus patients. Um, be conservative with fluid and actually guidelines recommend a negative fluid balance for these patients. Obviously, if they're not in shock, the negative fluid balance um, to make sure that they're not worsening the ARDS. Uh, so something else that I want to, before we finish this podcast is talking about COVID-19 um, case studies or just trials or um, just data relating to new uh, interventions that people are doing. So there's a recent study that looked at it was um it was basically looking at it was like a, a case series looking at patients who were receiving um sharing vents right so they were they were, they were had you know using one vent to ventilate uh, two patients and they actually found that doing that obviously caused a lot of issues and but the reason why they did it is because the, we do know that we're running out of vents and they wanted to see if there's a possibility that we could ventilate. Uh, two patients with one vent, multiple, you know, patients with one vent, but they actually found that you couldn't do that and because it would increase mortality given the fact that you couldn't, it would be difficult to synchronize two patients at once. The only way to do that is if you were to give neuromuscular blockade to both patients, but then at that point, you could run out of neuromuscular blockade over time, and at that point, they'll just be bigger issues. But in general, they found that even if you were to do it, there will just be an increased mortality in those patients. Um, if you want more info, you could check out, you know, Google, make a quick Google search and you'll be able to find the specific data on what they found. But the conclusion was that it wasn't recommended. And currently the other thought is what if we prevent patients from becoming intubated? We could potentially intubate only those patients with severe ARDS. So there was another study that looked at, um, it wasn't that many patients. They looked at 20 patients it was a prospective um, multi-center uh, cohort study. Uh, and this was not specific to COVID-19. This was a, a study that was done a year ago, and it looked at early proning 
combined with high-flow nasal cannula or non-invasive ventilation, whether it was CPAP, in moderate to severe ARDS. And they found that about half of those patients um, were be, were potentially able to be uh, saved from becoming intubated um, if you prone them um, and you, with high-flow nasal cannula. But now, obviously, with the idea that COVID-19 patients could, ha- could be aerialized with uh, high-flow nasal cannula, that's another issue that we need to consider. Um, but that's something to think about is potentially if patients are in just moderate ARDS, maybe we could save them an intubation by obviously wearing the right procedures, PAP, PAPRs, uh, PPE, uh, and so that we minimize the risk of transmission during an aerosolized event uh, and also save them an intubation if we could provide them that specific modality. So those are the kind of the data that we have right now uh, in terms of COVID-19 ICU patients. Obviously, there's more developments as we go. And currently, the the incidence of COVID-19 is only getting higher. And the mortality rate of patients in the ICU is only getting higher. So there has to be more education out there for everybody to understand the need to understand ARDS. And that's this podcast, like I said, is not gonna is not gonna give you all the information that you need. There's a lot of information with ARDS. But I wanted to provide like a, f- a framework in which you are able to understand literature that's being published now and understand where they're getting their information. So this was a lot of info, I understand. But at the same time, it's important for you to understand it because we are living at a point in which data is so much and you need to empower yourself to understand it all. And the only way to empower yourself is to understand the physiology, to understand the simple frameworks of ARDS and build on top of that knowledge, advanced uh, information. I'm not saying this is advanced, obviously it's not, it's a framework, but in general, if you have this basic framework, you'll be able to understand more basic features of vent management. And there's a reason why I didn't go specifically into vents, because if you're listening to this podcast, you're more likely a healthcare provider, a nurse, or um, a respiratory therapist, um, or just, just anyone, a resident, or um, if you're a fellow, you obviously know more than this, and you are the one dealing with vents. So we're not going to be delving into vent management because that's something that a attending or a fellow will be managing the vent. But I want you to understand that if you, if you see a patient who has a high plateau pressure, you're able to give that information to the fellow so that they're able to change the vents uh, based on that information you give them. So I want you to be able to advocate for the patient uh, and not look at the vent and not understand anything. So now with this information, you have some understanding of uh, vent management through just general knowledge of these clinical trials. And just I urge you to just think about the physiology with every patient that you encounter and it'll help you uh, understand medicine a lot more. So with that being said, that is the final um, words of this episode. I'd like to thank you for listening and understanding um, that there has to be more information out there. Um, So with the next episode, I'd like to take a break from ICU management and to talk about intern. Uh, I want to provide interns with uh, developing interns who are coming in next year with some understanding of residency. And so with the next couple of episodes, I'll be mixing it in with intern information as well as ICU level care. Uh, But I want to provide education for everybody. So the next couple episodes, I'll be talking about interns 
interim boot camp, which is gonna be a series, long series that I'll be implementing. But I'll also be throwing uh, ICU level care. In the next talk, I'll be talking about introduction to residency and uh, presenting patients. So if that's something you wanna hear, listen in to the podcast number four. And then I'll also be presenting various topics in other podcast episodes about septic shock and obstructive shock, just different types of shock that we might encounter in the ICU. So I hope you continue listening to this podcast. My name is Ebed Arias. I am a second year internal medicine resident. And um, I thank you again for listening. If you want to ask me questions, please follow me at Instagram, Ebed Arias MD. Uh, I would love to hear from you. I'll love to hear feedback. And I'll love to answer any questions you might have. So please stay stay safe out there. And I hope that you I see you soon in the next episode. Thank you so much. Have a great day.